Hi, and welcome to a podcast from Hope Springs Church Coventry. For more, please find us on Facebook at Hope Springs Church or on Twitter, we're at Hope Springs Cobb. Thank you and enjoy. Yeah, so Steve started us last week on a series called Following Jesus and I'm sort of carrying this on. Uh, I'll swap weeks with Steve, so I don't know what Steve was going to do this week, but I was going to speak next week. Uh, but the title I've got is Following Jesus Together. Uh, so obviously, having a common table is a brilliant way to move into this. I promise you it wasn't just for anecdotal purposes or a sermon illustration. But I'm going to talk about following Jesus together. And one of the questions that came up uh, when we were kind of discussing what we were going to do in the series was, how do we know... Jesus, to follow him. And it might sound like a bit of a weird question. Oh, you read your Bible, right? That's that. But how do you know that you're reading the Bible right? Because as we've unpacked the Bible, obviously you get teaching and um, you start to realise that maybe I, I didn't understand that, how I thought it was meant. And so as part of uh, the reading group, we're, we're looking into sort of basic theology, how we, how we know what we believe, essentially, uh, how we know our God. And so, I'm just going to elaborate a little bit. I'm sorry, it's a little bit sort of teachy, talking head, um, schoolish, I guess. Maybe it's appropriate. Uh, but we're going to just look at this. So I'll, I've put this up in the background so you can kind of keep in mind and, and be thinking about what could he possibly be talking about when he gets to this point. But there's this bit in Matthew 16, uh, one of my... You know, one of my other favourites, like the Good Samaritan from yesterday, uh, one of my other favourites is that Jesus takes his disciples and they go off to a place called Caesarea Philippi. And now, we just think, oh, he's just gone to another place. But Caesarea Philippi is like a three-day walk away from his usual stomping ground around the Sea of Galilee. So it's a really odd move for Jesus. So he kind of, you know, maybe he, he uh, lives and works around Coventry and then for some spontaneous reason that we don't know of in the scriptures, he decides to go to Manchester. Without knowing where Manchester and Coventry are, that might seem fairly, fairly straightforward. But when you know that Caesarea Philippi is not only three days walk away, but it's in sort of a foreign territory, then it starts to become quite intriguing. And what Jesus says when he gets to Caesarea Philippi, he asks this question, who do you say that I am? And the thing about Caesarea Philippi, as you might guess from the name, it's a city that was built to worship Caesar. Hence the name Caesarea. It was also a city built to honour the name of the person who built it, which was Philip the Tetrarch, one of the sons of Herod the Great. The other thing about Caesarea Philippi is that it's built on the site of a town called Pan. Now Pan is the ancient Roman god of fertility and the woods and he's the guy that you see in cartoons with the goat's legs with the horns with the flute the pan pipes that's where we get the word pan pipes from that is one of his main worship places so in this one tiny city you've got worship of caesar and you've got a temple built to caesar there you've got a city that honors philip the tetrarch You've got the shrines to Pan. You can actually Google this. Pan shrines in Caesarea Philippi and you'll get images on Google images. And the other amazing thing was there's a big hill 
a big rock, a big mountain with a big crack in it. And that big crack was known as the Gates of Hades. And this is where the ancients believed the spirits passed to and from the netherworld. And so in this one tiny location you have Caesar worship, Philip the Tetrarch worship, Pan worship, spirituality. And in this location, not Jerusalem, which would be a natural location for Jesus to ask this question, but in this strange foreign place with this melting pot of culture and religion and spirituality, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? So against this backdrop of Caesar worship, of Philip the Tetrarch worship, of Pan worship, of spirituality, who do you say that I am? And so the disciples deliberate between themselves and they say, well, some say you could probably be John the Baptist. The fact that we've seen both of you together makes that kind of awkward, but hey, we'll go with that. John the Baptist, maybe. Others say Jeremiah. I don't know why Jeremiah, why not Isaiah? Isaiah had a big chunk of the Old Testament. Jeremiah's second. Why, why the second best? But anyway, they say, you know, like, you could be Jeremiah, and, you know, some of the guys said, oh, you could be Dave, or Bob, or Stuart, or Steve, or, or whatever. You know, we know you're someone, because we've obviously followed you three days' journey. We're not quite sure who you are. And then Peter says, you are the Christ. Now, we think that's fairly straightforward. <gasps> Peter's got it. He knows. Peter knows. And Jesus kind of affirms this and says, Well, Peter, man has not revealed this to you, but God the Father has revealed this to you. And I tell you this, that I will establish my church on this rock. So we could be talking about Peter, because he changes his name to Peter, which means little rock. Or he could be talking about this big giant rock behind him with a giant crack in it, with all this different worship and all this spirituality going on, on this rock. And I tell you what, the culture, the gates of Hades, remember, this is an actual physical geographical location, the gates of Hades will not prevail. So Jesus is making an absolutely loaded statement there. He's saying, look, in the middle of this melting pot of culture, that is where my people are going to be, and they will not be overwhelmed by all this other stuff. They will not be overwhelmed by Caesar worship, by worship of the economy, of the local um, politicians, Philip the Tetra. They're not going to be overwhelmed by the ancient religions that are in their bones. They're not going to be overwhelmed by the spirituality or the superstition of the day. They're not going to be overwhelmed by culture. So for us, that might look like they're not going to be overwhelmed by the need to trade hours of their life for money to just get by. They're not going to be overwhelmed by having successful careers and becoming CEO of something or another. They're not going to be overwhelmed by the political movements of the day. They're not going to be overwhelmed by getting into things like the culture wars. They're not going to be overwhelmed by other religions. They're not going to be afraid by militant Islam. They're not going to be afraid by fundamentalist Christianity. And how do we know that Peter didn't quite know what he was getting into? Because after these things, Jesus started to describe that he would have to go to Jerusalem and die. The role of the Messiah wasn't to be the victorious military king, which is what Peter was understanding. He wasn't going to be the new David, because the Messiah, as you'll find out if you're reading Simply Jesus, was deemed to be the guy that would re-establish Israel as a nation and would rebuild the temple making Israel the people of God and everybody else not the people of God. Instead, Jesus said, look, as Messiah, this is my path. 
I'm going to go die because our real enemy is not Rome, it's not the prostitutes and tax collectors, our real enemy is death. And I will take death on, I will go toe to toe with death and I will overcome. I will take on the evil of this world and I will beat it. That is what the Messiah comes to deliver you from. The Messiah does not come to deliver you from an empire which may last for six or seven hundred years, for a thousand years, because it will too pass. I've come to deliver you from death and evil itself. And Peter said, oh no, 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 far be it from you, Jesus, that these things should happen to you. Otherwise known as Jesus, as your PR guy, that is a sucky idea. Dying does not get you more followers. Being killed by the enemy is, is, is losing. That's opposite to success. That, that's not being the Messiah, Jesus. And Jesus um, lovingly, consolingly, sympathetically says, putting an arm around Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. You have no idea what you are talking about or what spirit you are from. Now we could unpack that and go back to the temptations in, in the wilderness for Jesus where it's 40 days in the wilderness and the Satan tempts Jesus to get to a place of leadership, of messiahhood, of king of the Jews without facing death. And that's why you know, it says Satan goes off to an opportune time and this was one of those opportune times speaking through Peter's own messianic nationalistic drives to liberate his people from the Roman oppressors. So if Peter, who was with Jesus, physically with Jesus, witnessing the miracles, hearing the message, hearing the private messages, having the podcast on his, on his MP3 player of Jesus all the time, 24-7, following this guy around, if Peter doesn't know who Jesus is, how do we know the right Jesus? I've kind of painted myself into a corner there, haven't I? But Steve raised this really intriguing idea. They followed him because they knew there was something special about him. They just didn't quite know who him was. We know from, when, from the day we decide to make a decision to follow Jesus, the day that we fail to follow Jesus, the day that Jesus picks us up again and we start to follow him again, we know that there is something unique and special and transformative about Jesus, we just don't know the fullness of that yet, which is why Christianity isn't make a decision now, bada boom, bada bing, ticket for heaven. That's not what Christianity is about. That's why Paul says, continue to work out your salvation. Why? Because you're not saved? No, that's rubbish. Christianity has never been about a ticket to somewhere when you die. It's about working out your life now. And so it's always a process, it's always a journey, it's always a learning experience. So, how do we continue? to understand Jesus. So that's where this comes in. Um, a guy called John Wesley started the Methodist and all that. So this is very methodical. He posited this idea that it's called the Wesleyan quadrilateral. How do we know Christianity? How do we know our God? He said there are four things. Experience, which I'll go on to unpack as the risen Christ. There's tradition. Really hoping now that I've spelled everything right. There's tradition, which I'll go on to call the, the ecclesial Jesus or the communal Jesus. 
Um, there's scripture, obviously. Where's my Bible? Every preacher has to wave their Bible at one point in the sermon. So, scripture. Um, and then there's reason. Now, we might think, we might get a bit uncomfortable with reason in terms of, what, you mean we can just figure them out? That's not what I'm talking about. So how do we know which Jesus to follow? And I'd suggest that as good, sort of charismatic, sort of Pentecostally streamed Christians, we kind of live in, in this sort of region, experience. So our, our, our gatherings together are about experience. So we have the awesome, super handsome guitar player rocking some tunes. Um, and it makes us feel good. It makes us feel bouncy. We, we experience something. We experience some sort of catharsis as we sing, as we chant, as we, as we uh, worship God. So there's an experience to it. And oftentimes we'll say, you know, um, you know, some preachers would say, you know, do you feel the Spirit? It's very emotive. You know, how are you feeling today? You know, did you, did you feel something move? Did you feel transformed? You know, did the earth move for you? Oh. Just let that sink in as the coffee kicks in. <laughs> and so as, as, as good charismatics, we, we, we kind of live in that. You know, when the preachers, preachers, we, we like dynamic, jumpy up and down, sweaty, shouty preachers. You know, like our TD Jakes that make us want to like run out to the front and throw money at him. If you want to, by the way, that's the, on the corner. Um, you know, because we live in the experiential Jesus. And this is the Jesus, this is the risen Jesus. So if we look at... Um, Ephesians 3.17 Paul says this I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell dwell in your hearts through faith and I pray that you being rooted and established in love will go on to do all these wonderful things and so this is the Jesus that we experience through the Holy Spirit. It's a genuine thing. I might talk a little bit disparagingly about, you know, that kind of hype them up and send them out type Christianity, but it's a genuine thing. The risen Christ is the Christ that we know through the Holy Spirit. But the thing is that we can major on the emotive side of things. So if we put candles on and some smoke machines then we know that we're going to have a more meditative, reflective service. You know, if we all lie down and soak, we know that we're going to be in for an experiential time. You know, those sorts of things. And so, the, the, the downfall of this, this on its own, this kind of, well, I experienced Jesus. He spoke to me privately in a dream or when I was eating breakfast or when I was on the bus. Without any of the other methods... We end up moving into this realm of, well, it's private knowledge. Well, Jesus told me to take a chainsaw to your cat. (laughs) (laughs) And it becomes this weird, cultic Gnosticism. Gnosticism was a heresy that the church refuted in the early centuries because it all became about this private, well, I know in my heart. And that becomes the paramount thing. And so scripture becomes a secondary thing, or the church tradition becomes a secondary thing. And we elevate our experience of Christ. And so that means that pretty much with impunity, I can say whatever I want. Because, well, I'm a, I'm, I've got the Holy Spirit in me and I'm gifted of Jesus. Therefore, whatever I say can be validated as authentically God. Not that we do this, of course, because we do have the other balances and checks. But that's the danger of it. But however, without the risen Christ, Christianity becomes a religion that is dry and dusty with no life. 
There is no power to transform lives. And I'm not talking about being powerful and strong and let's make ourselves successful and have the biggest church in the city. But when we encounter lives that are broken and fractured and need putting back together, there is nothing, there is nothing active that's going to transform those lives. There is nothing within us that says, well, actually, maybe I should go without something for the benefit of this other person. Maybe if I've got a tenner in my pocket, I don't need to spend that on... 10 bags of Haribo, maybe I can actually give it to this guy that is by the, park, by the ticket machine in the car park. Because without the experience of Jesus, without the inner workings of the Holy Spirit, there's nothing that is going to compel us or challenge us or move us to do these things. And so we move on to, let's go to, we'll go to tradition. Now this sounds kind of scary, but we think of when we talk about the traditional Jesus, we kind of can fall into the trap of thinking about maybe um, Anglicanism or Catholicism, or if, if you're really kind of broad thinking, you might think of Eastern Orthodoxy. You know, we think of dry, dusty buildings and, and guys with enormous beards and, and really thick books that they've written because they're PhDs at Oxford University or something. But tradition is the ecclesial Jesus. This is the Jesus that we know through the community. And it's not just the community now, but it's the community from year dot all the way through. The problem with tradition is if we just... Tradition is dry and dusty without life in it. Tradition is dry and dusty without an experiential quality to it. Tradition is dry and dusty and just an educational process and just doing the standing up, city down, whether standing up, sit down, <laughs> thing. It is just sipping the wine and taking the wafer. It is just the smells and bells and whatever else and the guys wearing the dresses. Which is really funny, isn't it? Like, you have like, these kind of old school, mainline fundamentalist churches where the, 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 the priests or whatever wear dresses, but then they'd get really up in arms about you know, transsexuals or something. <laughs> Ironic. Anyway, <laughs> teaser for the day. Think about that. Dear Jesus, help me get on track. <laughs> Tradition can be dry and dusty, and it can just be formulaic and just go through the motions Christianity and think that that's all there is to it. Well, this is the bit where I repeat, unto you, or this is the bit where I say the bit, you know, because traditional churches do have PowerPoint presentations now, so they have it on the screen rather than just on the... You know, or I pray this prayer, and I don't really connect with the prayer, I don't know what they're saying, because there is no life, there's no vigour, there's no, there's no empowerment of the Holy Spirit in that. But without tradition, the thing is, that we, I know this in myself, that I think that we've got it now. 2016, Simon Mills with the Holy Spirit, this is a new thing. If this is the new wine, you know, the old is gone, the new is come, and all of that. And it's like, we try and reinvent the wheel. So wait a minute, you know, like, doing the, doing the communion bread and the wine, what, what's that? I don't, I don't get that. You know, and, and, and this enables us to overlook the teachings of all the saints through all of the ages. The richness of the sacraments. Like, one thing I'm learning is that the communion table is this completely radical, life-giving thing. And yes, in some, in some cases it has been reduced to a a wafer and, and, and some wine or whatever it is, uh, with no meaning whatsoever. 
But as we remove ourselves from these rich roots that we've got as Christians, as we kind of think that uh, since Azusa Street, that's that's when it's all coming on fire. That's you know, God was kind of lost until 1900s, and then he, he suddenly appeared on the scene. But, you know, we talk in that language, don't he? And God was all, all of a sudden there. But where was he the rest of the time? With the teaser for you. So without tradition, we lose out. We end up being able to move into this Gnosticism, this kind of my faith, my own ideas, God spoke to me prophetically, or some prophet told me something. You know, some prophet told me to go and get a chainsaw and take it to the cat. You know, like, well there. You know what I mean? Without tradition, without the buttressing of tradition, without this thought that's gone on for years and years and years where they've thrashed out, you know, you know, some of our great ch- early church fathers like Athanasius talking about the incarnation of Christ or the Trinity. You know, we're just starting to rediscover these great, great, great thinkers of this Christian faith that explain Jesus on a whole different level. You know, man, I just thought Jesus died on a cross for my sins and that was it. And these guys talk about the love of God and how transformative it is and how, how God in his trinity is in this endless dance of, of love and self-giving. And of course we're part of that because of course love needs to make space for us and of course love needs to give of itself. And as it pours into us, we need to give of ourselves to others. So we have experience which can lead us off the deep end. But it also gives life and vigour to our faith. And then we have tradition which can get dry and dusty but it also stops us from running off the deep end. And then we have reason. Now reason sounds a little bit like philosophical, like I said. Oh, wait, uh, let me just think about Jesus enough and then I get somewhere. But it's not like that. So the kind of, the reading group that we're in now, we're reading Simply Jesus by Tom Wright. And this is placing Jesus in his historical context. So reason is the historical Jesus. And why do we call it reason as opposed to the historical Jesus? Well, it's like, it's not through experience. It's not through tradition. We're learning about the culture of the time. We're learning that Jesus was a real flesh and blood person in a real time in history, speaking real words to real people in a real culture with real implications. Jesus wasn't a 2016 Christian speaking to 2016 world with 2016 problems. Jesus was a first century Jew speaking to Jewish problems. And then we can apply ourselves to that and learn what that means for us today. So, for example, if we didn't know where Caesarea Philippi was, then it just becomes some triumphalistic statement about how Jesus is going to build his church and the gates of hell. I mean, you even thought about that sort of statement and that sort of thinking. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. When do gates prevail against anything? No one here right now is worried that the doors are going to prevail against us. Look, I have no anxiety about the front doors or the gate on the little garden prevailing against me. It's a gate. But we kind of really offer some, Ooh, gates of hell will not triumph against us because gates are really scary. You know, even the gates of Mordor, you know, in Lord of the Rings, where they're big and they're massive and they've got trolls that open them. Those gates are still not that scary. The trolls are scary. The orcs with the knives and the the arrows, they're scary. But the gates, not so much. But once we place it in the culture, the gates of Hades was this place where the spirits of the underworld moved. You know, this will not prevail against my church. Then it becomes meaningful. So as we engage with the historical Jesus, we we take this two-dimensional caricature of Jesus that we kind of take on board from wherever. And he becomes real, he becomes flesh, he becomes blood, he becomes one of us. He becomes the word incarnate. 
And without that, Jesus is either some God that we can never hope to be like. And so we experience Jesus through the Spirit working inside us. We have the tradition of the church and the community. Because without the community, you know, like I could go off the deep end with a chainsaw and the cat. But then I've got all you guys to say, wait a minute, maybe the chainsaw and the cat's not so much of a good idea. Um, or in Lily's case, I will take that chainsaw to you. <laughs> and that becomes a sounding board. And then the, the reason that the, the, the Jesus of history is a flesh and blood person. So when it says that he knows, he knows what it's like. He suffered in his body, in his flesh. It wasn't a ghost. It wasn't God with a man puppet put on or anything like that. I don't know what that is. That sounds weird. Um, it was actually a flesh and blood person speaking to a real time. And therefore Jesus can speak to first century Judaism. He can speak to us now in a real way. And the final one then, Scripture. Wesley would posit that Scripture is the thing that holds this all together. So instead of having four rings and by the balance of all four of them, we find Jesus in the middle. I had to do the cheesy thing and put a cross in there. You know, he'd say that Scripture is the thing that goes all around it. And initially you'd think, well, that's true. So Scripture, the Gospels especially, this is where we first encounter a Jesus. But the problem with Scripture is that we don't understand it. Because if we just read it, like a book, left to right, top to bottom, conclusion at the end, well, revelation, it's quite a funky conclusion. Um, But we don't understand it, especially in the modern world. So we end up getting off track with how we read scripture, but digging in, because it's scripture, so it's got to be right. And we can use scripture to endorse all sorts of things. So, slavery was endorsed because they're slaves in the Bible. Misogyny is endorsed because of really, really, really bad reading of Paul. And I mean that, really, really, really bad. Any, any half-decent theologian would absolutely destroy those arguments for misogyny. For, for men being the head of the house and lording it over their lowly wives. That's not how it works. But this is the problem. We can misunderstand Scripture. We misunderstand. We think that the Gospels are historical, factual documents in the way a historian in 2016 would write a history. So in 2016, if somebody was to write a historical biography of someone, we talk about facts. We talk about places and names and outcomes. So we might talk about Winston Churchill. Before the war, really belligerent, sucky politician that no one really liked because he had a big mouth. During the war, amazing politician. You know, galvanised England in the fight against the Germans or something. After the war, really sucky politician with a big mouth that no one liked. Outcomes. Won the Second World War. Nobody cared after that. Ancient histories, ancient biographies. And this is true if you're reading about Caesar, if you're reading about Plato, if you're reading about any of these guys. It's not about facts and names and places. They did not have an obsession with empirical evidence. It was about meanings and symbolism and drives. What made them do this? What were they talking about? What were they doing? What was the significance of them? 
So if we were to write a modern, if we were to write an ancient history about a modern character, so Churchill, they wouldn't talk about, in this date he did X, Y, Z, and this was the outcome. They'd say, well, Churchill was driven by an insatiable lust because he, he was English through, through and through. And therefore, of course, he, he tried to galvanise the nation of England against the unstoppable forces, apparently, of, of Nazism. And by the way, this happened in these years, and this was the outcome. And so that's why we can have discrepancies between the Gospels. The writers had agendas. They had specific audiences that they were writing to, to illustrate certain things about Jesus, to encourage them specifically in certain ways, in the situations they were facing. So Matthew, commonly, very Greek name, he was writing to Greeks. So why was it so important that in Matthew, he's so dogmatic about demonstrating the tradition? Matthew quotes scripture loads. Because this was said in the prophecies, this is why Jesus did this. Matthew. Mark was the first of the Gospels that was created. So for the early church, this was the first sort of writing down. You know, they were brilliant at memorising stories. But this was the first writing down. So of course it's bam, 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 bam. Jesus did this and then he did this and then he did this and then he did this. And then, well, occasionally he said things, but he did this. You know, John, 90 years. You know, he was the last Gospel. John was sat on the island of Patmos. And, you know, he was the, he was the disciple that Jesus loved. I, I love John. Not because he's so, like, holy and high and, and mighty and, and all that, but because, you know, in his gospel, he takes time out just to say, and when we were heading to the, 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 the tomb, I beat Peter. I ran faster than Peter. Which must have really cheesed Peter off, right? Because Peter was always like, what about this guy? And John, well, I'm faster than you. Of course I'm going to live till Jesus comes back, or something like that, but that we misunderstand gratefully. But John had time to process these things. So John isn't even writing anything remotely historically. He just takes seven things and then explains them in all this beautiful, experiential, deep language. Jesus, you know, John doesn't bother with, well, he was born and he had parents and he did this and that and this. He was just like, and Jesus is love and love is Jesus and he's in God and God is in us and all these confusing passages that all rotate around each other because he's obviously sat there and meditated and thought about Jesus and thought about the things he said. So no wonder John is the gospel of love that talks about love and, and this, this entwining in the Godhead. And so we can misunderstand scripture. We can take it to mean whatever we want it to mean. You know, it's really funny that, that however I read scripture, it always seems to agree with whatever I think. Yeah. You know, it's very rarely that I read scripture and think, man, that disagrees with me, I better change my way. It's like, hey, scripture's agreeing with me. I'm, I'm a-okay with Jesus, you know? So that means the chainsaw and the cat thing, you know? <laughs> I have no idea how we got there. It's the wine, it's the wine. <laughs> I'm ban- <laughs> I'm excommunicated. <laughs> so without scripture then we have no starting point. We have nothing. <laughs> How do we know Jesus? Well without scripture we just don't. So we need all four of them. So how do we follow how do we know Jesus to follow? How do we know which Jesus it is? All four together are necessary and can function as a control on the other three areas at any given time. So how do we know Jesus? In worship together, in study together, in reflection together and in reasoning together. We know him together as his body, the reality, the joy that is Jesus. Lord of all creation, reconciler of all creation and redeemer of all creation. So, 
at points in, in the Gospels, in, in, in Paul's writing, he says, Consider yourself humbly. Humbly. Where are you? In all of that. How do you know Jesus currently? And how would you benefit from the other dynamics? I'd say that we could benefit massively, especially in our kind of tiny, tiny stream of, of, you know, we are charismatic, so I'm proudly in the charismatic stream. I'm not disparaging um, being a charismatic at all. But But generally, we live up here with a little bit of this. But not so much of that. And, and kind of a little bit of that now. So how would we benefit from engaging with more ways of knowing Christ? How would our Christ become more like the real Christ? Um, there was a question I posed to the reading group. What's the difference between the Jesus of your faith, your personal faith, and the Jesus of history, the real flesh and blood incarnate Son of God? And I kind of paused to think about that question. I actually think my Jesus... It's vastly different from the Jesus of history. My Jesus is infinitely smaller, less significant, less meaningful, less able to transform this world than the real Jesus. But I'm on a journey from my tiny miniature Jesus in 2D to that massive Jesus who fills all in all with love and transforms everything. And so, to finish off then... Uh, I just want to read a prayer of Paul's from Ephesians, if I can find it. So Ephesians 4. For this reason I bow the knee to the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. That's all of us all together. I pray this out, out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you, plural, with power through his spirit in your, plural, inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have the power together with all of God's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know that this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all of the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work in us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever Amen and it kind of behooves me to say that a lot of the journey of this in my thinking was based on a lot of work by a guy called Michael Hardin, a theologian called Michael Hardin so it's not just a name drop, it's I pinched some of this um he is an abrasive character on Facebook, but his book is an amazing treasure trove of decent theology. So, most, quite a bit of that was borrowed, except for the cat and the chainsaw thing. <laughs> that was all you. <laughs> that was all me, 100%. I'm going to get a t-shirt with that on it. <laughs> yeah, I'm never normally that obscure and weird. Thanks, Thanks, Thanks. <laughs>